Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Good morning. How are you guys? Good to see some smiling faces out here. Uh, It is a blistery winter morning, and so we decided to go without the umbrellas today so we could just heat up a little bit. Um, But it's really bright without the umbrellas. Apparently, umbrellas do a great job at blocking the sun. It's like this shade situation. I don't know. Just slowly learning here. Um, my name's Chris, and uh, I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you guys for those of you that are here in person. Thank you for those of you that are watching online. I know I popped on a little bit. Um, and I saw uh, Mike and Doris uh, logged on from New Jersey. They're back visiting family. There's so many people watching online, which is awesome. Uh, thank you guys for doing that. Um, We uh, have a couple just brief um, announcements, really two things before we start the message. The first one um, is uh, that um, on... December 24th, we're having our Christmas Eve service. It's going to be here outdoors. We're super excited for it. We're going to be doing one at 5.30 in the evening. And um, because we have just more outdoor space, we we figured we would just start off with one. And so one of the things that would be super helpful for us, for myself, for the people that are planning, is for you guys that are planning on being here in person. If you're watching online right now, whether you're here in person right now, if you're planning on attending our Christmas Eve service, the sooner that you can RSVP, the more helpful it'll be for us so that we can plan appropriately and make any adjustments that we need to make. Um, So if you guys could do that, you can RSVP. You can find a link uh, on our website, southhills.org slash Costa Mesa. If you're on our Instagram or Facebook profile, there's a link in our profile. Um, You can RSVP through that link. Um, But that would be super helpful for us. We are so excited to celebrate Christmas together. And I would love for you guys to find a way to invite someone to participate as well. We'll be doing our service in person. We'll also be live streaming. And so whichever way you feel more comfortable inviting somebody to experience the Christmas Eve service with us, uh, I would love for you to do that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, And then the second thing is that every week we have an opportunity to give. Uh, We call this tithing here at South Hills. Um, We usually talk about this at the end of the message, but we've got um, just a little bit of a different kind of ending planned today. Um, And uh, I just want to um, invite you guys to continue in that journey of trusting God with your finances as we talk about what tithing looks like. There's a piece of of giving that is a way for us to respond to God's um, invitation and his command for us. It's a way for us to show obedience and, and a sense of trust. And so that's one part of it, but there's another part of it in realizing the beautiful gift, and, and we celebrate this more at Christmas time than any other time, but the beautiful generosity and the gift of our Heavenly Father. And And as we give, it transforms our own hearts and it helps us become more like Christ, more like our Heavenly Father, and it helps us release control. And there is few things that we want more in 2020 than just like a little bit of control. 
And when we take a moment and we say, I'm going to continue to trust, I'm going to continue to give, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to uh, be grateful and acknowledge that God is my provi- provider by doing these things, it transforms our hearts in powerful ways and continues to help support our community. So you can give online, uh, southhills.org slash give. You can give through the Church Center app, um, which is a really great way uh, to do that. Um, and, uh, and you can set up recurring giving that way as well. So thank you guys for participating with us in that way. Uh, Let's pray together and we will continue with our service this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for this uh, powerful name of your son. Thank you that we get to uh, know the powerful love of Jesus in our lives. God, as we talk this morning about this continued season of Advent and and this season of Christmas and what this means for us practically here today, I I pray that we would experience that in a, a powerful way, that it would be more than just words, but that something would come alive to us and in us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, can you guys imagine uh, just like what it would be like just, I need you to put on like your imagination hats for a minute and just try and get to this place with me. Can you imagine what it would be like to just like work? Anybody? Does anybody know what that feels like? Uh, Just, you know, day in and day out to work. Uh, to get to this place in your life where you're not sure whether you are working from home or whether you're living at work and that line kind of blurs. Can you guys imagine what that would be like just to never see the, I mean, it's just the work keeps coming and that's, I mean, I know it's a big question for me to ask if you can kind of get to that place, this, this idea. And then, and on, on top of work and it's seemingly never ending uh, amount of work. And as much as you do, it doesn't feel like you ever chip away at the work that needs to be done. And, and it's constant and you're trying to figure this out. And, and then on top of that, you live kind of in a system and a society where the government is just making all kinds of rules and decisions and, and chat. Can you guys just like imagine with me? for a moment, what that might be like. That is what we're going to jump into Luke chapter two. Um, It starts off in verse eight. It says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. They're keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Kind of like the glory of the sun is shining on me just directly right now. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. It's funny because uh, I was studying this week and there's no really deep point to this, but it just made me chuckle. This word great joy, the, the Greek word there literally is mega. So it says good news of mega joy, which I think is just like we need that on more Christmas cards, like mega joy. Uh, Good news of mega joy. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, A great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, what the heck are we still doing here? 
not, that's not the real translation, but I mean, you can imagine like, it's just like, well, where do we go from here? It says, well, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread, the shepherds, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. It's interesting. And we've talked about, I mean, every year we get to the Christmas season we read some of these stories that are very familiar to us. And maybe you've grown up in homes or churches. You had the nativity sets on your uh, mantle of your fireplace and these different types of things. And, and one of the things that I think is so interesting to me is, is that there's a, a reality here in which the shepherds were most often younger kids. It was not really a profession that a lot of people smiled upon. It was most often uh, either outcast adults uh, but it was regularly there were younger kids, teenagers, and it's really still this way. If you go into areas where uh, in the Middle East where um, shepherding is still a thing, they're still they're largely still teenagers, and so you kind of have this sense when you think of these are younger kids, these are teenagers that have an angel appear to them and then a army of angels and the angels tell them this news and they run to see. And you can almost imagine these kids just like leaving their responsibilities aside and running to see if this is true. And it was true. It says, just like the angel told us. Uh, and then they come back and, and this idea that they spread the word concerning, uh, what they had been told and all who heard it were amazed. Um, you can, again, picture these kids, these younger uh, children, teenagers, the energy, the joy, the excitement. I mean, nothing like this would have ever happened. It was day after day of work and living at work and tending to the sheep at night and feeding them during the day and over and over again. And then this crazy thing breaks through in the middle of it. And then at the end of this, which I think is what I, I kind of want to just like hold on to a little bit today for us, in verse 20, it says, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. They went back to work. They went back to the flocks. They went back to the sheep. They went back to the hills. This is, this is kind of where they went back to. Have you guys, uh, maybe you've had these experiences. I know that this year is not really one where we talk about a lot of vacations that we've been on, but have you guys ever had that type of vacation where your vacation ended and you got home and then the day came for you to go back to work and you were just like, no, I don't think I can do this today. Uh, it happens a lot around Christmas too, especially depending on what day Christmas falls on. Somehow the work weeks get split up and cut up in different ways and, and you have this amazing day and it's relaxing and it's fun and it's food and, and pajamas all day and whatever the routines are and then all of a sudden you have to show up back at work and it's just this incredibly difficult thing. The shepherds after seeing an angel and then the heavenly hosts showing up and singing these songs to them. And then they go and they find out it was all true, just like they had been told. Can you imagine 
how jacked out of their minds, which is not a spiritual term, but that's the one we're going with today. Can you imagine what these teenagers were like? I mean, they must have been flying insanely high. I can't imagine what it would be like for them to go back to the flock, back to the sheep, back to the day-to-day, but that's what they did. They went back to their cubicles, their offices, their Zoom calls, their classrooms, their sheep. They went back. They had seen this incredible thing. It was true. They had seen an angel. They saw the baby laying in the manger, and then they went back to the normal day-to-day, not because they were doing something wrong, but because that is what their life was. It, was. it was their responsibilities. It was their job. It was their family. And you can almost even imagine their frustration and, and maybe even like the shortened amount of patience that they would have. There's always going to be one sheep that's like a little bit annoying and a little bit difficult. It's just this sense of not today. You have no idea what I experienced and I'm not in the mindset to do this today, but they go back. And I think it's important for us to recognize that everything changed. Everything changed in this moment. And also so much stayed the same. These shepherds have this experience. They see the angels. They see the Messiah. They, I mean, all of these, every, everything changed. They were overjoyed and they told everybody about what they saw and what they knew and what they experienced. And they still had a job to get back to. They still had a life. They still had the routines. They still had all of the things that existed before the angels showed up. All of those things that existed still existed. Joy doesn't require our circumstances shifting, but it does mean that our heart has shifted. There's a sense that the joy, the good news of great joy, mega joy even, if you will, uh, it existed and it didn't change any of their circumstances or their jobs or the way that their life was kind of, it, it just changed their heart in that moment. They went back The shepherds returned, but something was different inside of them, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen. Um, A famous theologian and poet, Bono, once said that joy is an act of defiance. And I think for so many of us, there's truth in that. And especially as you look at maybe the year that we've had, and I'm trying so hard today to not talk about like the chaos of 2020 because we're so aware of what 2020 has held. And I want us to see, kind of understand and hold on to this idea of joy in a, in a different and powerful way. But, but the reality is, is that in some ways, experiencing joy this year feels offensive to the year. And I've almost felt bad at certain times about the, the fun that I've had, or maybe that I felt relaxed, or maybe that it was a good week. I think that there's this reality that joy can be an act of defiance. It can say everything is broken and things are struggling and there's pain in the world and I've still got to watch these freaking sheep and I've got no idea what they're going to do, but there is joy in the midst of it. And it's this act of defiance of saying the circumstances are not going to change the amount of joy or the way I experience joy or the hope that I have or the meaning or the purpose, the circumstances may still be mediocre. They may be fine. They may be terrible. But joy in and of itself says the circumstances aren't going to define the hope, the feeling, the love, the joy that I have inside. The shepherds 
see an army of angels singing. And they go to town. They find the son of God in a manger. They told everybody they could find about this. And then they went back to the sheep, back to their job. Joy didn't shift the external reality or the circumstances, but it shifted their hearts and it shifted their minds. And I think that um, when we talk about who God is, I think a lot of times God, I think we shortchange God a little bit because there's some common themes that we talk about when we talk about our understanding of our heavenly father. We talk about God, the, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit. There's these kind of common themes that we talk about. A lot of people talk about the grace and the love and the mercy of God, which is great. Don't get me wrong. We don't need to stop talking about those things, but this is, it's a common go-to. Oftentimes people talk about the justice and the power or the fear of God. They talk about the judgment of God. There's these common themes, but one of the most common themes that I feel like people always seem to forget and we don't hold on to, and I am so guilty of this too, it was harder for me than it should be to write a sermon on joy. We forget that God is a God of joy. And somehow joy shows up throughout all of the scriptures in the beginning, in the middle, at the end, everywhere scattered between. I want to give you guys a couple examples, but because joy is the, it's, it's like the punctuation in the story of God. It shows up constantly in different ways. It may not always be the word joy, but the experience of joy that we have all felt. In the creation story, in Genesis 1 and 2, you may be familiar, it talks about how God spoke it into existence and, and he saw that it was, anybody out there? Joy, I like the effort. It was good. Yeah, mega joy. God spoke and it was good. There's a sense of like the creation and the enjoyment of it in that moment. Um, you guys know I talk about this often. I love cooking. Um, and most of the time, the food that I make is fine. And sometimes it comes out perfect. And there is very little in life that feels better than the joy of having cooked something and it be perfect. It's like this thing. It's like I, I made that and it is so good. And in a very small way, in the creation story, God is creating and he is making and it gives him this sense of joy. He says, this is good. And when he made man, he said, this is very good. There's this beautiful joy in the beginning. In the Old Testament, all throughout the scriptures, there are these reminders of God's joy and the presence of his joy. Actually, it says it mentions joy three times more in the Old Testament than it does in the New Testament, which I think most people would be surprised because they feel like the Old Testament is like the, the heavy, sad, angry God is kind of what that gets tagged as. But it actually mentions God's joy three times more in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. In First Chronicles, it says that strength and joy fill God's dwelling place. Over and over again, we're reminded that joy is very much a part of who God is and what he offers. And then nativity, Luke 2, good news of mega joy. Jesus, throughout his teaching, uh, one of the specific moments is in John 15. He says, I've told you these things. He's telling me the disciples to stay connected to each other and connected to him. He says, I've told you to stay connected so that my joy 
will be in you and that your joy will be complete. He doesn't say, I've told you these things so you don't screw it up. I've told you these things so you can figure out your life. He says, I've told you these things so that my joy, the joy that I have can be in you and that your joy will be complete. In the crucifixion and in the resurrection, joy still shows up in that place, which is so hard for us to understand. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross and disregarded the shame. Joy is what allowed, allowed and empowered and, and was made it possible for Jesus to endure the pain of the cross and to disregard the shame of the cross. It was for joy that did that. Joy over and over again. And as we look ahead to the perfection and the renewal of all things in Christ's second coming with this eternal kingdom. In Revelations 21, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain for all of these former things have passed away. All that will be left is joy. It is a powerful reality, this, this idea, this concept of the joy that shows up all throughout the scriptures and all throughout our lives. It's important for us to understand. It's important for us to hold on to and for us to acknowledge the, the role that joy plays, that, that we can find joy in our relationship with God, that God is a God of joy, that, that he gives us joy, that in some senses we experience joy now and, and in the future we'll experience a fullness and a full reality of joy. Joy is everywhere in this story that we are participating. And so one of the things that I know is a reality for all of us is that the joy oftentimes is difficult to find. Is difficult to come by. And some of the times when we find joy, it feels like it's taken from us. And so I just want to spend a few minutes talking about the enemies of joy. And there's three that I want to look at today. Um, these are things that are enemies of joy and they steal joy from us. The first one is comparison. If we want to be joyful people, we have to fight against comparison. We compare ourselves with other people, compare ourselves uh, with other family members or friends or coworkers or just even people on social media or on TV. Comparison steals joy, which is what Christ came to bring. It's what we are invited to experience, yet we still choose to compare ourselves. Social comparison theory says that individuals determine their own worth based on how they stack up against others. This is not a new thing. We all probably know this and have assumed that this is true. But one of the, the fascinating things that I learned this week is that uh, studies and research has found that over 10% of our daily thoughts involve making a comparison of some kind. One out of every 10 of our thoughts is some sort of comparison. And now there are neutral ways that we compare, and I get that, but so often what we are doing is we are comparing to find out where, where do I stand with these people? Where do I stand in this process? Where is my standing? We compare our strengths to other strengths. We compare our shame to other shame. We compare our weaknesses to others' weaknesses. Warren Buffett once said, and I just always chuckle when I think of him saying this, but he said, you never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. 
And I think that there's this reality for us that we just kind of look out and we assume that everybody is doing the same exact thing and they've all been given the same cards to play and all these types of things. But, but the reality is when you start to kind of pull away the curtain, you, you get a sense that, no, we, we do not all have the same thing. We don't all have the same opportunities or the same luck or the same blessing or the same family or whatever you may want to put it as. We compare. We say, I'm, well, I'm better than that person. I'm not as bad as that person. My mistakes are worse than their mistakes. My mistakes are not as bad as their mistakes. It's always this comparison, and it starts to steal the joy from us when we compare. Ecclesiastes 4, uh, verse 8, it says, There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, to his work. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. What a miserable business. There is this continued kind of search of comparison, of trying to get more, of trying to be more, of trying to be better, of trying to, to stand out and, and stand above, and it steals, it, uh, steals joy from us. And, and the writer of Ecclesiastes says that we are depriving ourselves of enjoyment when we do this. I heard one pastor say this phrase, and it stuck with me for years and years when he's talking about comparison. He said, when you take comparison and you break it down, you can turn it into a simple way of reminding ourselves what this does. He says, when I compare, I sin. Comparison. You guys get it? You guys get it online? He says, when I compare, I sin. Now, here's a situation. Comparing and comparison does not always equal a spiritual sin, but sin, this idea of sin means missing the mark. It means we're not, we're not really getting it right. And there's this reality for us that I would say the majority of the time our comparisons are not done in healthy ways. And so we've got to remember when I compare, I sin, I miss it, and ultimately it steals the joy that Christ came that we would experience, that you would experience, the mega joy, the great news. So comparison is the first thief of joy. The second one is cynicism. And cynicism, and this most often shows up in the way that we view the world that we live in. And this maybe is more clear now than ever in history because we are all a little bit cynical about everything. Um, Henry Nouwen wrote this. I'm gonna, it's a longer quote, but it's, it's so good. He says, cynics seek darkness wherever they go. They point always to approaching dangers, to impure motives, to hidden schemes. They call trust naive. They call care romantic. And they call forgiveness sentimental. They sneer at enthusiasm. They ridicule spiritual fervor and they despise charismatic behavior. They consider themselves realists who see reality for what it truly is and who are not deceived by escapist emotions. But in belittling God's joy, their darkness only calls forth more darkness. I don't know if you guys know anybody that seems a little bit cynical compared to this description. Someone who's looking for uh, the impure motives and the hidden schemes and, and naivety and all these different things. 
He says, in belittling God's joy, their darkness only calls forth more darkness. People who have come to know the joy of God do not deny the darkness, but they choose not to live in it. They claim that the light shines in the darkness and it can be trusted more than the darkness itself and that a little bit of light can dispel a lot of darkness. They point each other to flashes of light here and there and remind each other that they reveal the hidden but real presence of God. Every moment of every day, we have the choice between being cynical and being joyful. We have the choice between seeing something good and wondering what kind of twisted evil is inside of this good. It won't last. It's not that good. I'm sure that they've done something wrong. They can't be as good as they seem. This thing can't go as well. Has anybody had that situation where you've had like a string of like maybe two or three good days and you've been like, something's going to happen. I can tell. That's cynicism creeping in and it steals the joy. We could have joy in the moment that we've had two or three good days without some sort of noticeable earthquake. Um, but there's a cynicism that continues to creep in. Every thought can be cynical or joyful. Each action can be cynical or joyful. Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching and he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And I think for many of us, when we choose joy, we will continue to find joy. And when we choose cynicism, we will find all of the reasons we need to be cynical. There are plenty out there. And whatever we are searching for in these moments, ultimately we will find. I'm not suggesting that we pretend like everything is easy or painless. I am suggesting that we embrace the good news of mega joy. It should allow us to show up in the difficult places with a different perspective. Not hoping that one day a savior will come, but, but then the knowledge that the savior has already come and he's made his home in me. The cynicism that says, I am amazed at what I've seen. I'm amazed at what I've experienced. It's all true. And I'm going to go back to my sheep and I'm going to continue showing up. And I don't have to say, well, if there really was a savior, then he would for sure get me a better job. It's a, it's a sense of joy that says it is true. It is good. And it shows up even in the most difficult and bland moments. So comparison cynicism. And then the third one is complacency and specifically complacency in our relationship with God. It steals the joy. Comparison steals our joy. Cynicism steals our joy. And then, and then complacency in our relationship with God, it starts to erode at joy. Getting complacent in a relationship is really easy to do in any relationship because essentially it, it means that you just don't have to do anything. And we're the best at not doing anything. Like humans are so good at just not doing stuff. It's like a, a, it's a natural gift that we have. We excel at this. A dictionary defines complacency as a calm satisfaction with the way things are. And I think oftentimes what happens is, is we view these friendships relationships. We view our dating relationships. We view our, our marriage relationships. We view our our relationships with our children, with our coworkers, with our community, with our friends. We view these things and we recognize that we have to continue developing and caring and pouring into these relationships for them to be healthy. And we somehow just think that this relationship with God is not actually a relationship. It's just there. 
And the complacency just allows me to just, well, it can just stay there and I'm good with God and I know he loves me and he'll show up when I need him to. And, and we just begin to be complacent, but we're invited into a relationship with God. And I wonder if, if our relationship with our heavenly father, if our relationship with Jesus, I wonder if it's healthy. Would you want to be in a relationship with you the way that you are with Jesus? Does that question make sense? Would you, if you saw the way you showed up in your relationship with God, if you saw the the time that you put in and and the effort that you put into learning more about who God is and, 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 and his nature and the way that he loves you and the way that he works, if you saw uh, the way that you, you put that amount of time, is that, is that attractive to you? Do you think that that is a good relationship? I think we can become so complacent and it destroys joy because true joy can only be found in Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is speaking to his children and um, through uh, Moses, through the prophets, all throughout the Old Testament. Um, and he says this in Deuteronomy 8 verse 10, he says, When you have eaten and you are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Otherwise, aka, if you don't, If you don't remember to do this, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and you settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and your gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, if you don't praise the Lord, otherwise, when all of these things happen, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's saying, if you get complacent, if you don't continue to pour in and remind yourselves and remember God's goodness, remember the way that he's shown up, remember who he is, remember his nature, continue pouring in. If you don't do these things, you will forget. Your heart will become proud and that relationship will shrivel and ultimately suffer. The complacency destroys the joy. C.S. Lewis talked about this kind of in the, in the frame of desires. He said that our Lord, God, he finds our desires not too strong, but that they are too weak. He writes, we are half-hearted creatures. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for these mediocre things when pure joy is possible. Comparison, cynicism, and complacency, they all eat away. They erode, they steal our joy from us. The perfect expression of love is God embodied in Jesus. And joy is the byproduct of knowing that God is with us, that God is near to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is the last verse I'll read. I think we have this one on your screens. It says, um, Paul is writing this and he's talking about kind of the nature of what does it mean to to follow Christ. He says, oftentimes our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, 
but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. There's this bizarre dichotomy. Joy is not an ignorance. It is not uh, willful kind of ignorance, this choice to just not be aware, not acknowledge the pain or the challenges. There's an invitation for us to, to have our hearts ache with the reality of what is and also to have joy, to hear good news of mega joy that a savior has been born and then to go and to see the savior, the Messiah that changes everything, and then to show back up at our jobs doing what we are called to do, to somehow bring this joy into the day-to-day realities of our lives. True joy is ultimately born of salvation. And salvation is when God steps into our lives and changes our reality and breathes life into the things that we thought were dead. This is where joy comes from, is the the understanding of the the saving nature of God's love for us. Not just the, the salvation of our hearts and our souls to be in relationship with him, but breathing life into the dead things and, and the broken relationships and the fears and the worries and all of these different things. That is what allows us to sing words like joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. The song goes on and on. And I think one of the the lines that just, I think about this line throughout the year, and I don't know why, I do love Christmas music, but this line and the melody of this line, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy, and I won't sing it, but repeat, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. It is not ignorance. It is not foolishness. It is at the very core of who God is, and it is the purpose of Christmas is so that we could experience mega joy. Jesus's prayer is that his joy would be in us and that we would be completed by it. Jesus was able to stand the cross because of the joy that was in front of him, and ultimately this entire story is going to a place where we experience pure joy, no more suffering or mourning or sorrow. This is the arc of our story and of our lives. This is what we get invited into. It does not diminish the reality of where we currently live, but it allows us to see things in a different way and to choose to show up in a different way. So Jamie and the band are going to sing a song. Um, It's a newer song for us. We'll have the words on the screen. I would love for you guys to read along with these words and then to sing these words as you become familiar with the melody, to be able to internalize the reality of what this means for you and how this impacts your heart and your mind this morning. Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized, or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa, and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving.
Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.